my radical dream is that all people that are living in communities have access to clean water, quality food, and quality health care that fits the best of their needs within cultural and physical aspects. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hi, y'all. This is Christine, Creative Director for Foundation for Liberating Minds, and I will be hosting Dream Radically today. On today's episode, Food for Thought, we are joined by GW public health student Malia Zafra, who will be discussing the subject of food sovereignty, how it is intrinsically tied to our public and personal health, the need for food justice, and our dream for change. Melina, we are so happy to have you today and um, to have you joining us and sharing about your dreams and your aspirations. Before we get started, I know you wanted to share a land acknowledgement and an acknowledgement of identities since we will be touching on some topics involving indigenous communities. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. I currently live in Oklahoma City, which was the ancestral lands of Kickapoo and Osage nations. Currently, if you live in Oklahoma, you reside on the ancestral lands of Kickapoo, Osage, Muskogee, Caddo, and Seven Council Fires of the Dakota. I only know this because of the work I have done with Native activists, such as Samantha Manns and Jade Robertson within Uprooted and Rising Indian Territory. And the identities that I personally occupy are not that of a North American Indigenous person. I come from Filipino and Colombian descent, and those are the perspectives with which I can operate and navigate through the world. Um, thank you for informing us and letting us know that before we kind of talk and discuss on these topics. And so um, you shared your dream, and I love to start with why you have this dream. And so kind of diving into the purpose behind it and what led you come to forming this dream. And so um, I just want to start with a general question and ask you, What power and influence do you think food holds in our lives? I believe that food obviously gives us nourishment to be able to do the things that we want to do and and carry out through our productivity and our tasks. But also there is a very strong connection that we gain from food, especially when it comes to the knowledge and the energy that we receive from the land on which it was cultivated. I believe that also the mechanisms with which it was cultivated can have great effects on us. And so I think that there's this beautiful balance of security that people gain from, you know, first off having access to food, but also that sense of being able to have this independence to have your own solid source of produce, to be able to have quality food and things of that nature, and also the spiritual aspects that we are informed with it. And so even if you, and this sounds so cheesy, but if you you take a bite of a piece of fruit that was grown from a local farm, you will notice that it tastes different. 
with regards to, you know, the growing practices, especially if it's organically grown. But also, I think it makes you feel different because of all of the ways in which it was produced up until that point. Absolutely. Food holds immense power in our lives, as you've talked about. And today we're kind of talking about the subject of food sovereignty and how it plays a major role in public health. So I was hoping you could elaborate on what exactly food sovereignty is and uh, how it relates to each of our personal healths and the healths of communities. Yeah, public health and food sovereignty are tied together very intrinsically because what I like to define food sovereignty is that it is very much a political and really applied practice of steady access to sustainable and local foods. And so I think a lot of people who are probably listening to this or saying, you know, I have I have that access to food, but within certain communities, and I, I want to be very intentional about how we use our language, there's been this concept of food deserts that has arisen. And um, that was not by a mistake. It was not that, oh, the food just ran out or it just, you know, it doesn't come here anymore. The food distributors are not coming to this side of town. No, I like to call those things food apartheid. You know, it's very intentional that there were not nutritious food options that were made available to certain communities. And that was due to a practice of um, poor civil planning and as well as informed decisions by community leaders within those communities. And if we look at a place currently like the northeast side of Oklahoma City, they are in a food apartheid. So there are currently a lack of nutritious options over there. Most of the places that are quote unquote food stores are convenience stores that only serve dry shelved goods. So they don't have fresh produce and canned goods, which as we know now only contain a fraction of the actual vitamins and nutrition that people need within a balanced diet. And additionally, the, the food sources that are there that are restaurants are going to be your fast food, you know, big chain stores like McDonald's, Popeye's, um, and things of that nature. So I think while it is important to remember that, you know, people do have choices and options that they can make consciously for their own bodies, food sovereignty and food apartheid are public health topics because of the fact that people can operate within the options that they are given. So when it comes to something as basic as food, I think that it is important for us to be radical about creating new pathways of not only restorative justice, but restorative healing so that people who have been traditionally disenfranchised and marginalized, such as our Black peers on the Northeast side of Oklahoma City and in other areas that are under a food apartheid, that they are able to make choices that are best for them and their families and leads to better health outcomes, right? So there are unfortunately higher rates of hypertension and heart diseases within communities that are under food apartheid. And I think that this is greatly reflected in the kind of work that we are trying to help mitigate so that people have better health outcomes. Exactly. You've kind of elaborated on how access to food directly affects people's health. 
And so I want to kind of talk a little bit more about how you realize this dream, like the process that led you to this. So whatever personal experiences or encounters you may have that opened up your perspective on the importance of nutrition and food access within the domain of health, and especially advocating for marginalized communities and communities that are affected by that lack of access. I want to be clear about me speaking as an ally, but also as someone who has lived in poverty. So I have been a recipient of EBT and food stamps for people who may not be aware of what that is. And so a lot of the way that the state kind of sanctions these decisions for people and decides what sort of access they have uh, can be seen through the restrictions that people have, for example, on um, EBT food stamps. And so I think that working within those parameters and realizing that I had to budget uh, very carefully and also about where I could actually source my food whenever I was on food stamps uh, made me realize that there has to be an easier way for people to be able to basically buy goods, you know? And so I was actually working as an, as an AmeriCorps project coordinator in 2019. And we were working with seniors in housing that was either unsafe or needed a lot of heavy repairs. And most of the houses that we worked on in one particular like three month stretch were in homes that were on the northeast sector of Oklahoma City. And for people who may not be aware of, of what that sector looks like, it runs um, from about 23rd Street, Northwest 23rd Street, all the way to Northwest 36th. And then from east to west, I believe it is Kelly and Martin Luther King, but I could be wrong. So I was able to actually work with people and neighbors within this community. And I remember talking to them and being like, so, you know, what does a normal day look like for you? Because we often, within my work with Rebuilding Together, uh, the organization that we were doing home rehabilitation with, was that we would work with occupational therapists. And we would source a lot of uh, different um, pieces of knowledge to be able to have a full picture of what their day-to-day -day health was like. And we could make decision how to accommodate their needs based off of that. And I remember actually speaking to a gentleman. He has since passed away. May he rest in power. But Mr. Wallace had told us that there was not a grocery store in his neighborhood. And that caused me to do further reading about how the space in Northeast Oklahoma City had actually closed its last grocery store because of the fact that convenience stores were popping up and there were no restrictions on, on, on how many they could open up in a certain you know, radius of a city. And that caused a lot of people to not only be forced to choose between affordable produce options, but also the fact that if there's only one grocery store in your area and you don't have public transportation or you don't have maybe uh, enough money or the right amount of a budget because capitalism, it limits a lot of things that we do. I think that that is really what led to a lot of closure of grocery stores on that side of the city. And so what was really impactful to me is to know that people were trying to come up with different ways and alternatives of accessing this. 
And I got in touch with a neighbor who lives, I think she still lives on that side of town, at least after she's come back into the state. And she go, she used to go by the plant mom on Instagram, shout out to her, um, Christian. And she was talking to me about how she wanted to help start a community garden. And she gave me a list of organizations and resources that were currently working to help reduce the spread of food apartheid and increase food sovereignty. And there is a wonderful organization called Restore OKC. They actually have initiatives right now to open up another grocery store that is currently located on 23rd, I believe, as the sites. And there was also a marketplace at their facility that was sourced from donations from other places that was sourced from local food generators and local people who were growing their own food and who were also making their own goods, such as like soaps and things of that nature. And there is also initiatives by Oklahoma City Council, I believe, to build a homeland over there. And I think the projected opening date is for later on this year. So, you know, it is a work in progress, although I would say that the fact that a community has gone without a grocery store for three years now is is egregious. And this is not something that is unique. Unfortunately, there are similar situations happening on the north side of Tulsa. And for anybody who is familiar with Oklahoma history, then you would be aware that that is a predominantly Black neighborhood and also carries a lot of like political and spiritual weight with that too, because of what happened in the 1921 Tulsa race massacre as well. That's kind of a nice segue to talking about a maybe more recent political topic surrounding the subject of food sovereignty, which is the Supreme Court case McGirt versus Oklahoma. And I was wondering if you could just share maybe what effects this case carries along with food sovereignty. I think McGirt versus Oklahoma was such a profound and an, an exciting case for a lot of my peers within indigenous communities and tribal governments. Jimmy McGirt was a, I believe, a Cherokee man. And the case that was brought to the Supreme Court came from the late 90s over a crime that is very violent that I won't get into the specifics of. But he he requested and he actually had a team of people around him because he wanted to be tried on a federal level because the crime took place on native lands. And so I think really the most profound part of this case is that it helps to set a precedent regarding how native lands and indigenous ancestral lands are viewed and who has jurisdiction over decision-making. Because we've seen time and time again, the encroachment of land sovereignty and tribal sovereignty in, um, in many aspects. And so I think being able to kind of flip that on its head and disband a lot of the power that states have over the tribal governments is so important because now it's saying, okay, these lands are federally recognized as was constituted originally by Congress and that was never disbanded. And so I think that this is really incredible because what does this look like now for native peoples? Like what does it look like to now have your land be recognized 
not that it needed to be because we all, I hope, acknowledge that we are occupying stolen land. But I think that for land sovereignty and for for food sovereignty as well, that these can help play an active role in restorative justice and healing practices. And being able to have ownership over land for Native peoples and Indigenous peoples will also help foment a lot of agricultural and economic successes that they can have in the future because there's this increased visibility of ownership and there are better ways for them to advocate for themselves against the state on a federal level. And so as we're talking about this change that's taking place that you're seeing um, with the relevance of this court case and with the groups that are trying to see these changes be made and this this dream take form of reality, I want to elaborate on what you think this dream, what does this look like in reality? What does it take for this change to take place today? And so I thought we could maybe first start by talking about some of the specific work that you've been doing with uprooted and rising Indian territory and the land back movement, um, specifically for native and black native communities. Some of the practices of food sovereignty that we are currently trying to initiate and are also following the footsteps of our predecessors who are still here, which is incredible, is that we actually want to help build relationships that are intergenerational in nature between our senior, I guess you could say, farmers and food production workers to be able to pass that knowledge on to other people who may have interest that are, you know, in a generation after that. And so I think we are doing a really radical work that is also displacing a lot of the nonprofit industrial complex because All of the people within Uprooted and Rising Indian Territory are unpaid. You know, we are doing this on a grassroots level because we firmly believe that food and food sovereignty are basic human rights. And so we are working on our We Feed Us campaign, which is our mutual aid campaign that is geared towards raising money um, from community members who have uh, the means to donate. And we are also going to take that money and purchase goods from Black and Indigenous farmers of color and use those goods to feed BIPOC communities. And I think the really radical part of that is acknowledging that we don't need to go to um, traditional grocery stores or anything of that nature. Like, it's great that we would have the option and we would have that access to donations, but Really, the most amazing part about it is that Oklahoma is filled with farmers of color. We still have existing Black townships that are in the state and farming communities and communities that have been disenfranchised by big agricultural practices. And so we are helping to, I really think, dismantle that that power dynamic by directly serving BIPOC communities with BIPOC-produced produce and and goods. And so we are wanting to obviously implement our We Feed Us mutual aid campaign for for hopefully a very long time, and then also an intergenerational partnership, like I mentioned, as well as a couple of community fridges that are currently in the works. And so I was talking about the Northeast sector of Oklahoma City, 
And that is a targeted area right now for us to be able to uh, bring a community fridge initiative, which is a, an anarcho, I guess you would say socialist measure that was started off in cities like New York City and, and Madrid and Berlin to just have a fridge that helps feed the community. You've probably heard of like the dry storage pantries that are popping up around the city, but we want to make sure that people are having fresh produce that is locally grown. And I think personally, it will help like bring a lot of like spiritual ties of people together. There's uh, a lot of different people that are connected now with an uprooted and rising and it's growing quickly. And I think that the Indian Territory chapter that we have helped to establish more recently within the past few years is doing a, a great job of uplifting local businesses as well and local farming communities that are that are doing such similar work. So we have uh, great relationships with local farmers like Cir Circle Culture Farms, Commonwealth Urban Farms, and senior farmers who have helped advise us currently on our mutual aid campaign, such as Mr. Willard Tillman and Kwame Maboya, who runs the Northeast Oklahoma City Farmers Market. And uh, he also has some rural farming initiatives as well. So you guys are doing some awesome work. How do you think listeners can contribute to this dream? Yeah, so we actually have a, a really great platform for people to donate if they have the resources to, to the mutual aid campaign. And um, that can be accessed through our own social media. So if you look up Uprooted and Rising Indian Territory, we have a couple of videos explaining the mutual aid campaign, the We Feed Us campaign that we have currently. And I think that it would be so powerful for us to get more people involved in the effort because I think that this is not work that we should also be doing by ourselves. I mean, I think that the beautiful part about this is that as long as you are focused on dismantling white supremacy and all of the isms and all of the ways in which it incapacitates people, then we would love to invite more people to the conversation and just do this work with us because being able to also be connected to one another, I think is just another way for our communities to grow stronger. And I would love to see more people having things like gardens in their front lawns or participating in community gardening initiatives. And there are plenty of those that are popping up around the city. And, you know, we are actually working on a food map right now and also highlighting those opportunities as well. So cheesy enough as it is, follow us on social media and you'll be able to find out ways to support food sovereignty efforts. Absolutely. It's a group effort for sure to, to see change happen. Um, and then kind of on some closing notes, I would love for you to share maybe where your public health interests, maybe in relation to food sovereignty lie for the future, and maybe just expanding a little bit more on to you, what does like medicine and healing in relation to food look like? What is your vision for what it could be one day? I think that my vision of public health and the increased presence of food sovereignty within communities will help create this dynamic where people feel like their communities have everything that they need, right? That would be the ideal 
dream, this the scenario is that you're able to get quality healthcare, you're able to get all of your needs met on a spiritual, on emotional, on physical basis within your own community. And so having any sort of outreach and initiatives that help create those opportunities for people, such as local cl- clinics and workshops about growing practices, or even just preservation of seeds that are native to Oklahoma or whatever sort of region that people are working within, I think are just a few examples of like what that radical future could look like. And I would love to see more people being able to grow their own food. As, as crazy enough as it is, like food is a source of preventative medicine and healing because of the ways in which it helps nourish us and informs us of just what the earth and other people who have grown it can provide. And I think that there is so much to be learned from that. And my public health interests, as far as research and future work that I would like to do, lie on a vast array of topics. And so I I want to at this point in my life, have tunnel vision about food sovereignty as the goal. But I think that there are a multitude of different aspects that can improve the quality of life for people, such as, you know, access to vaccines and and health education about that. Sexual health education in Oklahoma is also a really big component. But the fact that a lot of these things are interrelated with each other, I think can help um, raise awareness about how people of color, Black people and Indigenous people can have a seat at the table of public health initiatives. And we don't want to reinvent the wheel or recreate new methods of being. Like, I firmly believe that Everything that we needed was already here. We just need to be able to tap into those resources and those networks of knowledge, whether that is through ancestral knowledge or uh, whether that is through investigation and through like scientific research of the organisms that are living within, you know, the environment around us. As far as being able to contribute to the stream, I mean, you know, donating um, your resources and your time to local efforts that are helping uplift communities around you. Also being a great ally to communities that you may not be a part of and building relationships and bridges across gaps of places and people that are not always given a seat at the table. I think I want to be very intentional about being involved with Black and Indigenous people specifically because we have seen the effects of state-sanctioned violence against them for so long. And being able to be a part of that work is, is truly restorative and transformational. I'm, I'm so blessed that I have the support system and the network of people that I do around me. And it's not impossible to recreate that for every person. Thank you so much, Melina, for sharing this dream. I think it's something that everyone in the Oklahoma community, especially, should hear about and learn how to contribute to um, because it affects so many lives around us that maybe we've taken for granted for a long time. I hope this inspires people to be part of this dream um, and to contribute to the efforts that are happening right now. It was so good to have you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, 
our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash Foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.